Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. I've got an hour to fly home and an hour to make a really tough decision of, do I just fly the jet back and try to land it, or do I fly it back, get to friendly territory, and eject? Welcome back to The Andy Rowe Show. Colonel Kim Casey Campbell was awarded the Distinguished Flying Cross for her actions over Baghdad in April 2003. You're about to hear a play-by-play of how she escaped death while flying in her A-10 Warthog. Before we get into the episode, make sure that you've made the most of the deal that we've got going with AG1. AG1 is the foundational nutrition supplement that supports whole body health, and I drink it literally every day before I start the day. I was tired of taking so many supplements and just wanted a single solution that supports my entire body and covers my nutritional basis every day. I want a better gut health and I hate taking pills and vitamins. So if you want to take ownership of your health, try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase. Just go to drinkag1.com forward slash Andy Rowe. That's drinkag1.com forward slash Andy Rowe. I hope you enjoy the episode. AC Campbell, thank you very much for coming on the show. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Can I call you KC or is it Kim? No, KC's fine. I go by KC, which everybody assumes is my initials for Kim Campbell. Uh, but I got my call sign very early uh, in my flying career. I was the only female fighter pilot in the squadron at the time. And so they named me Killer Chick, which is what KC stands for. How do you come up with those names? Like, who gives them to you? What's the process? Uh, It's exactly what you might expect from fighter pilots. It usually happens in the bar on a Friday night. Uh, It is essentially a rite of passage where you have to be be checked out as combat mission ready. And once they determine that you're combat mission ready, then there is a a naming ceremony. And uh, you're not in the room, so you don't get to hear all the the stories that they tell about you. But uh, I remember walking back in the room and just cheers from all the pilots in my squadron. And they said, well, you're now known as KC for Killer Chick. Oh, they must have told some great stories about you. Well, I heard about them later. So <laughs> they just don't, they don't want any, they don't want you in there because they don't want you saying like, oh, I love that call sign or no, I don't want that one. They're just, you know, you, you get what you get. <laughs> I was just speaking to you off air and saying how I've read your book. I read the whole thing, but hidden away in the back pages is that you got the distinguished flying cross. I mean, that's epic. Why didn't you have that in the front cover? Um, you know, it's, um, I think about, I mean, it's an incredible honor um, to get the Distinguished Flying Cross, to be awarded the Distinguished Flying Cross. But I also felt like I was just doing my job. I mean, this is what A-10 pilots do. It was an incredible time for us being deployed in Operation Iraqi Freedom. And so many of my squadron mates were out there doing their job, getting things done, supporting our troops on the ground. And I very much felt like on that mission, I was doing my job as well. And it was doing something that I felt like every A-10 pilot would have done. Um, I, and I and it is an honor. Um, but I also look back at all the other Distinguished Flying Cross recipients. And it's very humbling uh, to be among that group and among that crowd. I think what means more to me, not to downplay the Distinguished Flying Cross, but what means most to me more than anything is all the notes that I would get from ground troops or the just words of thanks. Um, I came back from a mission one day and got a note from some troops that were on the ground in Iraq. And it said, thanks for saving our ass over Baghdad. Um, you know, I got a note from a, a daughter um, through social media that said, you know, thanks for what you did because my dad wouldn't be here today without you. Like that's to me, like the true, like, passion and purpose and the reason behind why we do what we do that makes sense that is incredible I'm, i mean yeah I'm words. it puts it into perspective i think yeah massively puts it in perspective 
Right. I think, you know, um, especially as a pilot, you know, we're flying overhead. We don't always get to meet the troops on the ground. Uh, we know, you know, we, we obviously have a passion to, to serve them and support them in the best way that we can. But when you meet them afterwards, when you connect with them and you realize that you're, you're saving individual people and getting them home safely to their families, like it just, it does, it puts things into perspective. And for me, it really reinforced why I was doing what I was doing. Uh, it reinforced the fact that sometimes we put ourselves in these fairly risky situations to save troops on the ground, to save that one soldier that might make it home to his family that wouldn't have otherwise. And that's, I think, that's a good perspective to have. It makes it real. It makes it personal um, and reinforces the importance of what we do. It makes it real outside of the environment that you're operating in as well. Not that it wasn't real where you were, but the impact that it has outside of the theatre that you were operating in. Yeah. Well, let's wind the clock back because you got the Distinguished Flying Cross. You were a colonel. You were a complete badass in the A-10. You've talked about the A-10. But let's go right back to where it all began. Can you remember what it was that convinced you that this is the path that you wanted to go down? Well, it started for me when I was 10 years old, so uh, a long time ago. Uh, and for me, this was 1986. I just date myself there. But um, in 1986, I was watching the launch of the Space Shuttle Challenger. And there was something for me that in that moment, as devastating as, devastating as it was, I also recognized that those astronauts died doing something that they believed in that was big and important. And I love this idea of this thrill of flight. Um, thankfully, I had very, very supportive parents at the time, because I said, I told them that that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to be an astronaut. At that point in my life, they were like, okay, you know, 10 year olds, I have one, uh, they say a lot of things about what they want to do. And I think for them, they were like, okay, that's nice. You know, okay, we'll see how this goes. Um, but my dad, you know, my dad had been in the military and he said, well, a lot of the astronauts are pilots. A lot of them come from the Air Force. You might, you know, you might think about that route. And for whatever reason, that was it for me. I was like, all right, well, I'm going to go to the Air Force Academy. I'm going to become a fighter pilot and I'm going to go on to become an astronaut someday. And I think my dad still at the time was like, all right, we'll see about this. I mean, he went to the Air Force Academy at a time there was no women. So once he saw that I was really committed and I kept after this, I think there was part of him that was like, what did I do here? This is my little girl. And I just gave her this idea to go take this very challenging path. And it, the other thing I didn't know at the time is women weren't actually allowed to be fighter pilots. So here I have this dream that isn't even allowed by policy at the time. Nobody told me that. <laughs> so they just told me work hard, go after what you want. Uh, but it, it definitely set me on my path. What were the prerequisites to get in? Uh, to go to the Air Force Academy, it's highly competitive. Um, obviously, you got to get great grades, be well-rounded, lots of sports, um, extracurricular activities, uh, and then our standardized testing scores, which is where I, I um, will just say I wasn't very good at those. Uh, that's where I really struggled. Um, and so um, sadly, instead of getting that long-awaited acceptance letter from the Air Force Academy, I did get an initial rejection from them. Um, and then... That's actually a really big part of your story because the failures that you had along the way were what really set you up long term, weren't they? Yeah, I think, you know, you have in your mind, like, this is the path, this is, you know, and you, and you work really hard and you do everything that you can. And I felt like I was fairly competitive. Um, I knew I struggled a little bit with the standardized testing scores, but I thought that maybe everything else would, would be enough. Uh, and the truth is it wasn't. Uh, and so I remember opening the mailbox as it was like this ritual. I would go to the mailbox every day uh, as a senior in high school waiting, you know, to get that acceptance letter. Um, and instead it, I opened it up and it said, you know, sorry, uh, it's a highly competitive process and please try again next year. Which was totally devastating, right? Oh, those letters are the worst because it's that <laughs> word that always pops out in the front line and you just don't see any other word apart from whether it's unfortunately. The word unfortunately yeah. just manages to pop out above all the other ones or unsuccessful. Those two words that so just pop out and they're just like, oh, you know. don't even bother reading the rest of it. And I was, I was deflated. I mean, I was devastated. It was like everything that I had worked for. And I, and I kind of, you know, my words in the letter were like, uh, thanks for applying. You're not good enough. You know, it's competitive. And, and that's, 
you know, sadly, that's what I walked away from it with. And then I had these incredible people around me who supported me and were like, Kim, if this is your goal, if this is your dream, then stay after it, you know, don't quit. Uh, and so I decided to write the Air Force Academy a letter every week uh, to let them know I was still interested. <laughs> they probably got tired of hearing from me. And at some point, we're like, all right, fine, just give her the acceptance letter. Um, but I also improved my scores along the way. So eventually, right before we were to start basic training, I got my acceptance You letter. told them that you were going to turn up on day one in case someone else didn't turn up. <laughs> I did. I did. I was like, well, hey, look, if someone doesn't get off the bus, you know, you, you get up to the Air Force Academy and you take the bus up there and then, you know, they're yelling, it's basic training. There are people that were like, they'll stay on that bus and go, this is not for me. And so I had in my mind, and this is what I told them is that I would be standing by waiting in case someone didn't get off the bus. It didn't bother me. It was more like, all right, let's do this. You know, I'm going to prove that I belong here, prove that I can do this. I mean, I was already had this, I don't know if I want to call it a chip on my shoulder, but like there was a little bit of incentive for me to perform because I had gotten rejected. And so it was like, all right, I'm going to take this and I'm not just going to survive here. I'm going to excel. Um, there were about 16% women there at the time. So very low numbers. And so I had that with me too, of just wanting to prove myself, wanting to prove that women belong, that I belonged. Um, and it was just, I mean, I think with anything I do, I'm just going to go in and I'm going to go for it and do the best I can. Did you feel out of place? Not really. You know, I had, um, I had done uh, civil air patrol, which is like for a young cadet's um, introduction to the air force. So I had, I had worn a uniform before I, I knew how to march. I knew how to do all of those things. Um, I just, you know, the, I kind of, I think I fit in in many ways because athletically I could perform. I could do all the push-ups, pull-ups, sit-ups, you know, the runs were no problem. You got a pull-up bar installed in your bathroom, didn't you? <laughs> I did uh, because I, in high school, I was a soccer player. I ran track and ca- cross country. So upper body strength wasn't like uh, my strong point. And I think once my dad realized that that's what I wanted, he really uh, thankfully, um, recognized that I needed to go in ready. And so I worked my way up so that I could max the fitness test. Um, and that made a huge difference. When you talk about the culture, there's also the wingman culture that you guys have in the Air Force. Can you talk mm-hmm. about how that plays out in real terms, how you live that every day? Yeah, I think very early on in our career, we are introduced to this idea of having a wingman by your side. And this is before we even get in an airplane. And we're just taught about supporting each other, encouraging each other. You're also competing against each other. So you're kind of challenging each other to perform at at your best. And it's also understanding kind of everybody has a role to play and where do you fit into this bigger picture and how do you achieve success as a team? So we learned that very early on at the Air Force Academy. And then it really carries with us as we become pilots and you get you really see how important being a wingman is because a wingman, especially in a fighter squadron, you have very specific roles. I mean, a wingman looks out for threats while the flight lead, the person leading the formation is very focused on, you know, the end result getting to the target. Uh, But the wingman's checking six, that area, you know, where we can't see behind ourselves. So very specific role uh, required to achieve mission success. And so you recognize that you have a role to play and your performance is critical to team success. Uh, And I think that, you know, you you learn that early on, you see it flying. And then I got to see it in just leadership roles throughout my time as well, um, of how you build high-performing teams is all about this idea of having a wingman culture. How does that translate when you're doing talks to organizations and other companies and just civilians, if you like? How does it translate into real life situations or not military life situations for want of a better term? Yeah, I think one of the most important things is having that common purpose, that reason for being like, what is your why? What is your mission? And you, the idea is that everybody understands that they understand the role they play. So there are clearly defined roles and responsibilities. You make sure that people have 
the training, the resources to be able to meet those roles and responsibilities. But the idea is that people understand that their performance is critical for shared success. It means that we have each other's back. It means that when someone isn't doing as well, um, we have a responsibility to hold them accountable by helping them perform, letting them know that they're not meeting expectations. And the whole intent is that the the team performs better. Uh, so it is um, it is something that we see that is based on trust and having an environment of trust. That's kind of the foundation. And that's one of the things that is so critical if you want to achieve these high levels of performance. Can you talk a little bit more about the trust part of it, like how that comes into the wingman culture and how that works? Uh, I think you trust each other that you are going to perform at your best, that you're going to work as hard as you can. You're going to trust each other that um, my role in this is that I'm going to trust the person on my wing, my teammate to do their job so that I can focus on my job. Um, but trust doesn't happen overnight. Obviously it's something that's built, um, in over time. And I, I do think it is the responsibility of the leader to kind of set the standard and build that trust, create that environment where we trust each other. We support each other. We have these very human level connections of getting to know each other and understanding our strengths and our weaknesses and, and how we fit in. And you became a leader quite early on, didn't you? I did. So I, I mean, at the Air Force Academy, I had the opportunity to lead the cadet wing. So all 4,000 cadets, um, you know, again, it goes back to this idea that I'm not just going to survive there. I want to excel. I want to take on some of those leadership roles and responsibilities. And so I got to lead all 4,000 cadets, my very first uh, real leadership role in the Air Force uh, in, in a learning environment. Uh, but I went on uh, to lead teams throughout my time in the military while flying airplanes and then beyond. I just skipped over the part about the escape and evade part of your training because that's, that's a huge part. Like the, I love asking military people about this. Yeah, how did you get on with that? How did you get on with the interrogation part of it as well? Because it's pretty intense. It's as close as you're going to get <laughs> oh, yeah. to actually being captured. Oh, it's one of those things that like it's it's an incredibly important part of training, but it's nothing I ever want to go through again. I mean, it certainly um, it teaches you a lot about yourself and what your limits are. Um, it is one of those things that is very critical, so that. If you potentially get shot down someday, you know how to survive, um, escape, uh, resist. Uh, and it is just, it's not fun. I don't know how, how else to explain it. It's one of the hardest things I've ever done in terms of like mental and personal um, development and stamina and just getting through something that's really hard. And I say by yourself because you're in solitary confinement a good portion of the time. And so you kind of learn about yourself and how well you do in that environment. Um, but I will tell you that when they finally brought us together back as a team, wow, it was like, finally, we're like back together. You feel like it, you recognize how important it is to like have people by your side when you're going through something hard like that. How long did you actually have to evade capture for? What was the timeline like? Did you, did they chase you with dogs or? Uh, so we, there's different phases. So um, first is uh, the, survive um, and evade portion where we're out in the woods and we're given points to go to and you're in small three-man teams uh, and you're just you're traveling at night you've got a compass and not much else trying to get to these points and of course I think when I was there it was raining I mean it was miserable you're cold you're wet you don't have much food you're hungry um, I don't know that we had dogs but we there were you know simulated enemy out searching for us let's just say they were dogs there were lots of dogs. There was a pack of wolves chasing. <laughs> there probably were. They were terrible. Um, but there were, you know, the enemies out simulated, of course. But they're, um, you know, you don't want to run into them. And and then eventually, uh, you all get captured uh, by design. Whether you were doing a good job evading or not, you're all going to get captured, and you go into um, essentially a prisoner of war camp. And you're interrogated. You go through different types of interrogations. You're in solitary confinement. Um, it's just, it's not fun. I mean, there's nothing fun about it, but, uh, I'm thankful I went through it because I feel like if I were in that environment, it at least would give me something, uh, to go off of. And then you go into the actual flying part and there's a contraption or machine that you guys use to look after ear sickness or to try and cure ear sickness, isn't there? Can you tell me about that? Yeah. So, you know, here's someone who's wanted to be a pilot since they were 10 and I struggle with air sickness. And I mean, it's 
it's miserable. Um, it's, it makes you doubt and question everything, uh, that you want to do because like, I'm excited about flying and then I go out and fly and I'm like, this is miserable. I'm like, I'm getting sick on every flight. I, I just want to power through it and be done with it and move on. But it like, it just keeps happening. And it, it really made me question, like, is this the right path for me? Like, is this something that I can truly go do and be good at it? Because it is such a detractor in the airplane. I mean, I'm trying to fly. I've, I've studied, I've done all this work and then I'm, you know, not feeling great, which it's really hard to fly when you're not feeling well. But I just pushed through it eventually, um, you know, went through a lot of different programs that the Air Force had. Um, but uh, oh, it was it was a miserable time. I'm thankful that's behind me. What was the chair? Oh, the awesome chair. The, um, the Air Force has this training device, we'll call it. I think it's more like a torture device. It's called the Barony Chair. And when you get airsick, if you've done it, you know, get airsick enough times, they'll send you to the barony chair. And it's a chair that if you think like a chair with a metal hoop around, and then they just spin you around and they make you put your head down and turn. It's, it's, uh, they're trying to just get your inner ear to adjust and adapt and get used to it without being in the airplane. But it's miserable and you feel sick in the chair too. So it's just like adding on extra opportunities to feel uh, to get airsick. Uh, and now you're, you know, at one G sitting on the ground and they, you know, they're just, they're just trying to get your ear more exposure to it because they know at some point your body adjusts and adapts. Mine just took a little bit longer. That just sounds awful. Like my stomach feels tighter <laughs> now just listening to that. Yes. Mine, mine too. Like I still, uh, yeah, I, I don't ever want to go through that again. Um, but it works. I mean, I've, I got through it. It just took me a little bit longer to get through it than others. Was that the reason why you failed one of your rides? Because you, you failed your, one of your check rides, didn't you? One of the really important ones. It was actually my very last check ride in the program. So I kind of had this rough start, rocky start of, um, you know, air sickness. And then I, and then once I got beyond that, I performed very well. Uh, I got, you know, I was working towards the top of my class. I had gone on to the fighter track. I was performing very well, had done very well in the program. And then I had my last check ride, which is a formation check ride. So where you fly real close formation uh, to another airplane. And I'm sure I was nervous. It's probably what caused all of this. But the um, we wear helmets and then the visor on my helmet um, as I was flying started fogging up, probably because I'm breathing too hard because I'm nervous. And now it's like really tricky to actually see these features on the airplane that's very close next to me in this tight formation. And I can tell I'm like, okay, I I tried as best I could to just ignore it. And then it got to the point where I was like, well, this is probably not very safe. Uh, And so I just told my pilot in the back seat who's evaluating me and explained what happened. And he was like, no big deal. I got the airplane. He takes the airplane and, and moves away from the other airplane. And he's like, all right, fix your visor. So I, you know, I've got gloves on, I'm trying to get the, the mask defogged and, uh, or get the visor defogged and, you know, I do the best I can. And then he's like, all right, no big deal. Like this is like to him, it's not a big deal. It's life. Things happen. And he's like, get back in formation. So I got back in formation, but then the whole time I'm sitting there, I'm thinking about, oh, I must've like performed so poorly and I was doing terribly and I wasn't flying very well. Meanwhile, I'm still supposed to be flying And because my mind is like in the past, you know, the couple minutes that have passed versus like in the moment, I did not fly very well. Uh, Let's put it that way. It was the worst ride I ever flew in the program. I, you know, I had been doing so well. And the instructor, when we came back, he, I remember him just sitting down and was like, Kim, you're a good pilot. That was a terrible sortie. (laughs) That was a terrible mission. And I was like, noted. I knew it, you know, and he's like, look, you cannot let these things stay with you. You have, if you make a mistake, you have to let it go, learn from it. Don't do it again, but let it go. And, you know, that was a very powerful lesson that happened very early in my career. You know, in hindsight, like as painful as that moment was, that failure, it probably saved me in my future career a few times um, because I learned that you cannot stay in the mistake. You can learn from it. You debrief it. You think about it from that perspective, like learn the lesson, but then let it go. Don't do it again. Let's talk about the A-10, the Warthog. 
fair to say that that's maybe one of the loves of your life? Or? I have a, a special place in my heart for the A-10 Warthog. Uh, it is officially known as the A-10 Thunderbolt II, uh, but we all call it the Warthog or the Hog for short. Um, it is an incredible airplane from a standpoint of there is no better airplane to perform close air support to support our troops on the ground. Uh, it's incredibly reliable, durable. Um, it's built so that you can take hits while performing its mission. Uh, it's just an, an incredible airplane. And our primary mission is to support the troops on the ground, to provide that close air support when they need it most. Can you tell me about the plane and what the reason for it being built was? So um, the the plane was built um, initially in this with this idea of going into tank battles and so they built the airplane around a the 30 millimeter Gatling gun, which is 19 feet long. Uh, so the airplane itself was built around this gun. So they picked the gun, then they designed the airplane around it. Uh, if you look at the, yeah, if you look at the airplane straight on, you'll notice the nose wheel is slightly offset, uh, so that the gun barrel that actually fires the bullets is very center on the airplane. Really, it was all about the gun. It's all about the gun. That is so American. Yeah. <laughs> Fitting, huh? Um, it, it was, they just realized that that would be the primary weapon to do its mission. And so they built the airplane around it. And what's it like firing that weapon? Just knowing that you're in the plane and the whole plane is built around that gun. It must be incredible to fire that thing. It, so in the airplane, when you shoot it, I mean, you can feel the the whole jet shakes around you. I mean, it, you can feel the the gun kind of rumble beneath you. The jet is shaking. You smell the gun gases like you can see it outside. Um, and then ideally you watch the bullets impact the target. But it is uh, I mean, it's it's a full airplane, you know, experience because it is, you know, the airplane's built around the gun. So you you feel it, you see it, you hear it. It's uh, it's pretty impressive. And then you come to the getting ready for battle bit, the getting ready for combat. There's the red flag thing that you do in the Nevada desert. Did you do that? I've done a few few different red flag trips, yes. Yeah, because a good friend of mine did that. Uh, Dan Lowe's, he was actually the first. He was a Red Arrow fighter pilot, um, a display pilot, and also a fighter pilot for the RAF. He went over there and did it, isn't it? So that because in the Vietnam War, there was a stat that if you made it past your first 10 missions, your chances of survival went up so much and so dramatically that they created this red flag so that it was like a war game situation as close to real war as you could get to give pilots the experience that they needed so that when they actually went into battle... They were essentially past that 10 mission threshold, which massively increased their chances of survival. Is that what is that what it was? That's exactly it. I think, you know, uh, Vietnam was obviously a very different war and we sent very young pilots to go fly in the war. And what we found um, was that if a pilot could survive their first 10 combat missions, they generally could survive the war and or at least that deployment. Um So what they did is they tried to create this exercise that would simulate that. So it is, it's a very high level exercise where you're put under stress. There are, there is ground threat, there is air threat, but it's designed to give you those first 10 missions so that when you deploy, you at least have that experience underneath you. You know, you've got that experience. Um, And it is, it is high threat. I mean, it is high risk. It's, um, it is incredible from a standpoint of, learning to work together with all the other assets, whether they're from, uh, we do coalition flags where we bring in um, personnel from all different countries. We we realize when our equipment doesn't work well together, we learn how to communicate better. It's just, it's a fantastic experience, but it is a lot of pressure. It's very high stress. Um, it's very, um, let's just say a fighter pilot debrief in the red flag auditorium. There is nothing quite like it. Uh, in terms of being put on the spot and calling people out when they don't don't perform, um, but it's it's one of those things that is incredible and definitely sets us up for success. Do you find being put in those situations, those really intense situations where you know sometimes you might get the red mist or you might not be th- thinking you might not be thinking straight because you're stressed and you're under pressure? 
does it help? Have you seen it help you when you actually get into the real thing because you've already experienced it doing the red flag? Absolutely. I think when you're put in those hard situations, when you're put in those difficult situations, you're going to be better at it the next time. You're like, okay, I've, I've been there. I've seen it maybe training, but I still have seen it. I've experienced that. And I just think it makes you so much better than when it, when it comes time to actually do it. So the, the idea is we put each other in the. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for, but you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. You know, we put, a, put ourselves in these stressful situations. We you know, you, you brief, you prepare, and then the situation totally changes, right? And you have to make decisions real time on the spot, be flexible. Um, and that, I mean, that happens all the time in combat. So why wouldn't we do it in training so that you're better prepared to deal with stress to it? I think it helps you uh, remain calm in the moment. So like when, when it's total chaos and things are going wrong and, you know, for us, troops on the ground are screaming for support. Like it's almost, it just helps us remain calm and composed and you kind of just fall back on your training and you remember those tough situations. Even if it's not exactly the same situation, there's enough there that you're like, I can deal with this. And then you had to put that into practice firsthand when you were called out to a deployment in Iraq in Baghdad, over Baghdad, April seventh, two thousand three. Talk me through. Talk me through that day. Yeah. Um, at this point um, in two thousand three, we had been deployed to Operation Iraqi Freedom for about a month, um, and we had been flying for just a couple weeks. Um, but our ground troops had pushed all the way to Baghdad, and the situation on the ground at that point was pretty intense. Um, so much so that our missions would be, we'd take off from Kuwait, which is where we were based out of. We'd fly roughly an hour, uh, for us to get up to Baghdad. We'd air refuel. So totally fill up, get gas while we're airborne. And then we would just wait in these stacks. They had just stacks around Baghdad so that if somebody called for air support, they would just flow aircraft from the stack to that ground unit. And, uh, this is, I mean, this is kind of where we had got to is very, um, very predictable and that that's what we would be tasked to do. And then it would be totally unpredictable in what we were actually asked to do. And on April 7th, uh, unfortunately the weather wasn't great. So we, um, we were really struggling, couldn't see the ground below. Uh, we struggled to find the tanker. I remember at one point my flight lead was just like, I'm not sure we're going to be able to do anything today. I mean, the weather was that bad. And then we got a call. Uh, we got a call that our ground troops were taking fire. They needed immediate assistance. And then we had to, you know, we were going to get in there as quickly as we could. Um, the ground controller described the situation on the ground. He told us that our troops were uh, hunkered down awaiting resupply. And the enemy was essentially shooting rocket propelled grenades into our troops. Uh, we knew we had to get in there quickly. It was a troops in contact situation. Uh, so we immediately proceeded right over the top of the target area and then just kind of looking for a hole in the weather uh, as we we're flying along. And I remember my flight lead just going, he very quickly was like, wedge shooters guns, which is our formation. We're both shooting. We're going to use the gun. And then I just watched him disappear. It was like he saw that hole in the hole in the weather and he was like, wedge shooters guns. And he just rolled inverted and disappeared through the clouds. And then he said, all right, Casey, uh, it's your turn. And I remember just kind of looking down, finding that hole in the weather and just dove through. Um, 
when I popped out down below the weather, that was surreal because I could see the firefight. We were down now low below the clouds. I could see tracers and smoke. Um, very surreal for a second as I watched this firefight happening back and forth across the Tigris River. And, you know, I remember kind of looking down and, you know, I'm at the same time trying to make sure all my systems are set up, looking for my flight lead, looking for the target area. I mean, there's just a lot going on. And then suddenly I see these like puffs of gray and white smoke and then this like bright flash in the air next to my cockpit. And I realize like it's this sudden moment of reality of like, oh, there's not just this firefight happening across the river, but now the enemy is shooting up at us too. Um, we, we briefly talked about it and we're like, all right, we got a mission to do. So we're just going to keep our airplane moving and try to get in as quickly as we could. Uh, we did a couple passes of guns and rockets um, on the enemy location, which for us uh, was a... Uh, the target was the enemy hiding underneath a bridge. So we were getting low using our forward firing weapons. Uh, and uh, at this point, we decided we were going to just do one more pass because uh, of the high threat situation. And I remember just kind of setting up for my last pass, trying to get make sure everything was correct. I rolled in, I fine tuned my aim point, I hit my weapons release button, the rockets immediately come out. And, uh, and then I'm just pulling off target just to get away from the ground, away from the threat, trying to climb up and get my energy back. And I just feel and hear this loud explosion at the back of the airplane. And there is no doubt in my mind. I know immediately that I'm hit. Um, it dumps my airplane over, like I'm in a left-hand turn and it's just like, almost like a getting rear-ended by a car at high speed. It just dumps my airplane. I, I remember immediately looking down at the ground um, that is now getting closer and I pull back on our control stick just, I just, you know, instinctively as I'm, the ground is getting closer, I pull back on the control stick and nothing, like nothing happened. It was the weirdest sensation of like nothing. And uh, I remember thinking like, am I going to have to eject? Like, am I going to crash? Like what? It's just these thoughts like going through my mind I quickly try to figure out what's going on. I've got, you know, master caution lights flashing. We have a caution panel on the side. It's lit up like a Christmas tree. I mean, it's just covered in lights. And I look up very quickly at these hydraulic gauges, which are just above our caution panel. And I remember looking over at them and they're both empty. They're both at zero, meaning I've lost all hydraulics on my airplane, which is how we fly and control the airplane. And so at this point, my options are eject, which is not really a great option over Baghdad. Because it's split down the middle, isn't it? It's basically one side of the river is friendlies, the other side of the river is baddies. Yeah. And at this point, you're on the wrong side of the river. I am on the wrong side of the river at this point. And as a pilot, if you eject over the wrong side of the river, if those guys get you, you are in a world of trouble, right? It's... It's not going to be good. I remember looking down and there was this like this green grassy area in the center of Baghdad. And I remember thinking like, this is what's going through my mind, right? In, in this short period of time. But I remember thinking, looking down like, okay, if I have to eject, maybe I can steer my parachute uh, down to that grass and then get in the Tigris River and like get to the other side where our friendlies are. I mean, it, these are the things that are going through my mind um, all at the same time. I'm figuring out what's going on with my airplane. Um, but thankfully, you know, the A-10 was built to take hits. And um, I was able to uh, get our jet in the, the emergency backup system called manual reversion. It really is just a switch. But I remember flipping that switch and just hoping it would work. I mean, I didn't know what the rest of the damage was to my airplane. Yeah, because that manual reversion... There had been reports of it not working well in the A-10. People had tried to use it previously to you, hadn't they? And it not ended well. So it generally works in terms of like getting the airplane initially under control, but um, trying to fly it back and land it, that is where we um, did not have success. Uh, and so I was just hopeful that I could get the airplane under initial control and then my my thought was if I can just get out of Baghdad, like if I can flip this switch, just get out of Baghdad. So if I have to eject, now I'm outside the city. I have a better chance of survival, <laughs> survival, evasion, right? The things that we were talking about earlier, I have a better chance of that so that I can get then get rescued. 
like that's what's going through my mind uh, at the time. Um, but thankfully that, you know, the jet, when I flipped the switch, the jet started climbing and moving, you know, getting out of Baghdad and better under control all at the same time. I've told my flight lead that I've been hit. He's directing me to get West so that if I have to eject, I'm ideally over the friendly location. They're still shooting at us. So I'm trying to get out more chaff and flare, which is our countermeasure system. I mean, it's just a lot going on all at the same time. There's so much going on because I'm listening to this going, oh my God, oh my God, like, what, what are you doing? What are you doing? And it's all happening so quickly as well, isn't it? It was about, so I don't have the exact timing, but roughly like what I have is me saying over the radio that I've been hit and then me saying over the radio, I'm in our backup emergency system. And it was roughly 20 seconds. So if you condense that, it's probably like 10 seconds of time that I'm thinking about all these things and actually taking action. I mean, it's it's really fascinating to think about how fast your brain can work in a really critical moment to like analyze all this and then make the best possible decision. Those things that went wrong, if you go back to your training, did they come back to you at this point in a positive way like did it help with your anxiety knowing that you had failed and then overcome and learned in the past did this help you in this present moment absolutely it helped i mean in that moment like i just i was so focused on taking action i didn't even think that i was scared i was like no i mean i didn't even have time to think about the fact that i was scared in this moment but i go back and i listen to the audio like I can hear the fear in my voice. Like, I know I'm terrified. I mean, I'm plunging to the ground out of control. I might have to eject over Baghdad. Like, none of that is good. And I can hear the fear. I mean, my my voice is more high-pitched. I can, I'm barely saying anything on the radio. So I know that I'm afraid. But in that moment, I'm not focused on it. I'm not thinking about it. I'm just taking action in this highly stressful situation where I have to make a decision. And I think all those hard things in my life that I've done – like all the stress, all the, you know, all those tough learnings that happened over time really prepared me for that moment so that I could remain as calm as I could to be able to analyze something and make the best decision in a really difficult situation. I mean, I think all that training is what led me to that moment. I love that because there's a message in there for anyone that's going through something tough at the moment, whether it's at home or at work, that it's these things or these failures are setting you up to be able to deal with them better in the future. Yeah. And it's so hard to think about that in the moment, right? When you're going through something hard, you're like, this is terrible. Like, I don't want to deal with this. This is stressful. But I do think that every time we do something hard and we, you know, we get through a challenge, it prepares us for the next hard thing. It's just hard in the moment to realize that. Like in the moment, you're not really thinking about all those lessons you learned. You're thinking about how terrible and painful it is to go through that hard thing. Um, but, you know, that's the benefit now that I have of 20 years to reflect on this mission and to look back and think of like, why was I successful in that moment? How did I survive? How did I get through that really hard time? And I look back at all those different things in my life that were hard that I was able to get through. Um, and I really think it prepared me for that that one moment over Baghdad. So now you're on the manual reversion. Do you know what the damage is to the plane yet? I don't um, because I can't see any of the damage. It's all at the backside of the aircraft. Uh, And then my flight lead uh, eventually rejoins with me. And uh, we're now above the weather, just outside of Baghdad. And so he's looking over my airplane to tell me the damage. And I, I remember he keyed the radio and he said, well, you've got hundreds of holes in the fuselage and tail section and a hole about the size of a football in that back horizontal stabilizer. <laughs> oh and uh, I just remember thinking it was like, that's not good. Like this is, <laughs> that is not good. And I'm not really sure how the airplane's still flying. I was, I, we have mirrors in our cockpit uh, to see behind us, but I just couldn't get them to where I could see any of it. Um, you know, but again, the, the, the airplane was designed to take the damage. It was flying, uh, you know, at least good enough. Um, and you know, now I'm in this manual reversion. I've got an hour to fly home and an hour to make a really tough decision of, do I just fly the jet back and try to land it? Or do I fly it back, get to friendly territory and eject? Um, probably the hardest decision. But even ejecting, like people think, oh, I just eject. You'll go flying out of the plane and you see, catch a parachute, land safely. But there's quite a bit going on quite a bit of stress on your body 
getting injected, isn't it? Isn't it like yeah. something like 20 Gs? It's, yeah. And I mean, that's pretty significant. Um, you know, ejecting is certainly an option. And I know it's an option and many people have ejected safely. But um, I also, because of my lower weight, had signed a waiver that said, I acknowledge that if I eject, there is an increased um, likelihood of flailing injuries. Um, but eject, yeah, you're right. I mean, ejecting is a, it is a violent process of ejecting, you know, on a rocket out of an airplane to get you safe. And so, you know, I knew, I knew that I could eject if I needed to. The other thing I knew is that our airplane has what we call a zero, zero seat, meaning I could eject at the very last second at zero knots, you know, no speed and zero, um, altitude. And I, it would be fine. Like I I should be able to survive that. So I knew I had that in my mind is like, I still have that option. Because I'm assuming you knew the history of the 18 and how hard it is to land using manual reversion and then the stress and the risks involved. I mean, you had to sign a waiver about ejecting. At this point, did you think it was a real possibility that you might die? Yes, it definitely crossed my mind. Um, An hour is a long time to think about the fact that you could die when you attempt to land or you eject. Um, And I really like those thoughts would creep in occasionally um, where I would think about like kind of the worst case scenarios of crashing. And, you know, you try not to think in those moments of like all the things that you haven't done in your life or all the things that you still want to do. And it's like I had to push those thoughts out of my mind. I like I had to tuck them away. I knew at some point I would have to deal with that, but right now I needed to focus on flying and get just maintaining control of my airplane and really focus on what I was going to do. Um, but I did think about it. I mean, I, I it was a, it was a really tough decision. I there wasn't really like a good one, right? Neither choice was great, um, and I just went with my gut feel based on how the airplane was flying. I'd, I got to fly it for an hour. I felt very comfortable with how it was flying. We did what we call a controllability check. We got the gear down, all these emergency procedures, and I got to feel how it was flying then. I had a very experienced flight lead, my wingman, right? Back to that wingman culture of having somebody by my side to help me through this. Um, and then thankfully, the conditions at the home base, I had the winds were straight down the runway, which is convenient for landing. Um, I just, I went with my gut feel based on a thorough analysis of pros and cons, consequences, risk. I just made the best decision I could with the information I had. And you landed it. And I landed it. Probably the best landing I have ever done uh, (laughs) to this day. Uh, At least, you know, it felt that way. It felt like to me, like getting on the ground was such a feeling of relief. And relief is such an understatement to this day. I still don't have that word, but it was like utter relief, like just life-changing relief of like, I made it, I survived, like I got through this. Yeah, like life-giving relief. Like, Yeah. Yeah. You've been shot. You've been shot down. Like you shouldn't be there. Yeah. There's no way that anyone can really understand that unless you've been cured from like a life-threatening disease, that there's life before that mission and then there's a life after that mission where you're just consumed with relief and probably gratitude for being there. It's like this fear of the worst case scenario and then knowing that you made it. It was like just a, I mean, my adrenaline was still going, but there was just this relief that just washed over me of like, okay, I made it. Like I made it. Man, yeah, because you're like staring down the barrel of the worst possible situation and then all of a sudden you've got the best possible situation. It's like this is, potential dread of what could happen and then knowing that you've recovered from that right like it was relief and I think at the same time like now I'm on the ground and you know we pride ourselves in like radio discipline and being very you know good on the radios and it like all radio discipline was gone out the window because all the pilots that in my squadron that we were either in other airplanes or in the control tower like just hearing all their voices over the radio. Like, I think they were relieved too. Like many of them thought they were potentially going to watch me crash and like this fear. And so for them, like there was no discipline on the radio. Like I just remember hearing their voices 
like to this day, I know who they are. I know like just welcoming me home and, you know, like nicely done, like all these just really reaffirming thoughts and to know like they were there, they, they like, you know, they couldn't really do anything, but they still had my back and they're just their support and their encouragement. And then getting out of the airplane and like being surrounded by them, like it was just, there was so much goodness that came out of that in terms of, um, our unit and how we got through something hard. And for me, I think really set the stage for the rest of my career, the rest of my life and overcoming something hard and just having that team around me to support me through it. Man, I just got tingles. It's goosebumps. <laughs> I get goosebumps every time I talk about it's unbelievable. it. unbelievable. <laughs> such an amazing story. You went through all that and then didn't a car arrive and take you to where the engineers were or the guys that looked after the plane? Yeah, so... Um, I, my, once I got my airplane stopped and got out, like I couldn't, I couldn't taxi it. Like it was, it was done. Uh, it had no steering, it had no brakes. So at this point, like I, it, I left the airplane on the runway. Yeah, of course. Cause you would have seen the damage. I just skipped yeah. past that. What did you well, think when you saw the bullet holes? Well, that was like the first thing I wanted to do. Like I got the airplane stopped and, uh, there were a bunch of actually Marines who were the firefighters that met my airplane. And uh, I remember hopping out and I'm looking at them and they're like looking at me and looking at the airplane, like what? And like, it was just a shock, I think from all of us. And I walk back to the back of the airplane and it is just, it's dripping. It's dripping with hydraulic fluid. There are holes everywhere. The whole backside of the jet is charred, like blackened from a fire that happened at some point. It's soft to the touch. Like the metal is no longer hard. I mean, I was just, I was looking at it thinking, I have no idea how I just flew this thing and landed it. Like, I have no idea. Um, but it was, you know, at the same time, I'm looking at it thinking, I just destroyed my crew chief's airplanes. Like, these these crew chiefs work on this airplane. They put their heart and soul into it, and I just destroyed it. <laughs> it's their baby, right? It's their baby. And I, uh, so now I leave my airplane. The, I have a car there that is there to pick me up. And uh, I remember uh, it was the wing commander met me and he was like, where do you want to go, Casey? And I was like, I don't know. I guess I should go back to my parking spot. Like, I should probably talk to my crew chiefs. Like, I got to have a conversation with them. And so the whole way back, I'm just trying to think about like, what do you say? Like, how do you apologize for destroying someone's airplane? And I remember pulling in the parking spot and my crew chief um, at the time that was waiting for me, I had two crew chiefs that day, one that launched me out, Senior Airman Randy Andrus, and then my crew chief that was waiting for me to recover the airplane was Staff Sergeant Ian Morris. And I remember like I hop out, I look up at Ian and he like has the biggest smile on his face. He like grabs my hand and he's like, ma'am, we're so glad you're safe. We're so glad you're home. Yes. And I, I didn't have to say anything. Oh, like I, it didn't yes. matter, right? Like. It was just awesome. Like it was so, it was so nice to like feel that support from the team and know that like he had done everything in his power to make sure that airplane flew even after extensive battle damage. And, you know, he helped me get back. He helped me survive making sure that airplane was ready to go. So the fact that I destroyed his airplane really wasn't, um, he wasn't mad. So that's the good news. (laughs) Oh yes. That's the great news. And then you get the distinguished flying cross, which is just epic that's massive yeah what did the citations say and so I didn't know about this and I didn't know that they were putting me in for the distinguished flying cross um I I we actually it was presented to me once we got home from the deployment and I remember we all got called into the room with all of our maintenance um personnel all the pilots and there is the um commander and calls me up to the stage and I just remember like hearing the citation was almost overwhelming. Like there's part of me that as, as they were reading it, I was like, did I earn this? Like I was just doing my job. I was just doing what any of my fellow brothers and the squadron and sisters, we did have one other pilot by that time. Um, I, you know, I was doing what they would have done. Like we were supporting our troops on the ground. So the citation was all about the support to our ground troops during that troops in contact situation, able, you know, able to take some of the the fire off of them, um, and, and to help them out, but then also recovering a heavily damaged airplane and landing it back safely. Um, but yeah, you wonder, like you think about all the people that were awarded that award and that's, and just very humbling, you know, to think about the people that had come before me and had done these amazing and incredible things. 
Um, but very humbling to stand there in front of my entire unit uh, to hear that citation read. Oh, mate, I bet. And, but you deserve it. And it's incredible what you did. It's incredible what all of you guys did over there. And I don't think people can really understand, especially with the A10, how close to the action you were. You weren't just circling overhead and firing a missile from way up in the sky. You guys were right down close to the action, like hectically close to the ground. Well, it's, it's, you know, what we're trained to do just in terms of our primary mission just to support the ground troops. It means we're going to take more risk to help them out. Um, and we train to it. I mean, we, that's what we, that's our primary mission. And, um, you know, like I said, to me, I really, I found like my passion and my purpose in my life because of what we were doing, because we were able to support them and help them to get home safely. Like I just found passion and purpose in that. I didn't know how long I was going to stay in the air force. I didn't know, you know, how long I was going to enjoy doing this. And it turns out, you know, 24 years later, uh, you know, I just, it was such a reassuring mission. And um, I just enjoyed the opportunity to make a difference in people's lives. Your book, Flying in the Face of Fear, where can people get hold of it? Uh, it is available um, on Amazon. It's probably the easiest, especially uh, depending upon where people are listening. Uh, but it can be ordered uh, through Amazon. It's probably the, the easiest. Um, and uh, It's also available in audiobook as well. It is, yeah. So it's uh, available hardcover, audiobook, um, and then ebook. Um, you know, I, I recognize throughout my life when people shared stories with me, you know, the stories that I remembered in that moment over Baghdad from pilots that had come before me. And I realized how critical it is that we learn from others and their experiences, even if we're not going to experience exactly the same thing to really learn about the lessons and how they did hard things. And I feel like that made a difference in my life. And so that was the idea behind the book is to share some of these lessons, um, you know, lessons for me that, yes, they started in aviation in my time in the military, but I have used them as a leader of teams outside of the military. I have used them as a parent. Uh, I am a mom to two boys. Uh, and so, so many of the lessons out, apply outside of the military and outside of aviation. In your book, Flying in the Face of Fear, you mentioned these three types of fear. Talk us through that. Yeah, I, you know, this comes after the course of some reflection over time of, you know, feeling fear on that mission, quite honestly, being afraid to admit that I was scared for many years. And, and now looking back that even though I didn't want to admit that I was scared, uh, I felt fear in, in a few different ways and um, different times on the mission. And the first was, you know, that immediate moment of fear when my airplane was hit, you know, I didn't have time to think about it. I just, I just had to react. I didn't think about the fact that I was scared. And I think, you know, I look about how I feel fear these days in that way. There are moments where like, it can be as simple as being put on the spot in an important briefing, right? We, we feel this a sudden, like kind of pit in our stomach. We feel that little bit of fear, but you have to, you have to do something. You don't have a lot of time to think about it. Um, you know, they're not always life and death situations. And then there was the prolonged fear. And that was the fear that I felt flying that mission home. Like, that was a long time to be afraid. I by that point, like I knew I was scared, like, I was worried, I was scared, I was just fearful about what could happen. I had a lot of time to think about it, probably too much time. You know, I thought through pros and cons and consequences. And, you know, I thought about those worst case scenarios. And I realized I can still feel fear like this today, you know, that's prolonged and you have a lot of time to think about it. Like whether you're preparing for a presentation or a negotiation, those tough conversations sometimes that we have to have with people, like that's where I start to worry about how, how I will perform. Like, how will it turn out? What will people think? And, you know, I can tend to overthink things or think about those things I can't control. And I just, in those moments, I go back to those lessons that I learned in combat about how do you embrace it? How do you focus on taking action? And then I would say that the last way that I felt fear on the mission was that it was the fear of living with my decision of like, I've made my choice. I'm going to try to land this airplane. I feel confident, but I was still nervous about like how it was going to turn out, you know, what, what was going to happen. And I realized today I still have moments where like I doubt a decision I made, you know, where it's like I feel confident I've, I've done the research, I've done my work, I've done all of those things, but there's still that nagging sense of like, hopefully I made the right call on this one. Um, 
And I think, you know, in those moments, we we worry about how we perform. We have that fear about like how it's going to turn out. Um, and I think it just goes back to having the courage and the confidence that you've put in the work, you've done the research, you've done all of the hard stuff in advance that has led you to this moment. You make the best decision you can, you make the best choice you can. Uh, and then, you know what? Uh, you learn from it. Thank you so much for coming on the show. You're such a legend. And just the way you've been able to tell your story, which is one of the epic stories, and give us the lessons that you've learned so that we can maybe use those in our own lives. Um, massively, massively appreciative of that and, and of your service as well. So thank you so much for your service and thanks for coming Oh, on thank show. you. <laughs> and thank you very much for listening. Don't forget to make sure you leave us a review and subscribe on whatever platform you're listening to this on. I know it's cringy. I know I say it every week, but it really, really does help. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.